Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, I'm going to chat with three physicists about the latest haul of gravitational wave signals that have been detected by the LIGO-Virgo observatories. And we're going to talk about what these signals tell us about black holes. But first, we travel back in time to Tudor, England, when a famous warship sank during a naval battle with France in 1545. In 1982, the wreck of a 400-year-old warship called the Mary Rose was raised off the south coast of England. After an intense conservation effort, the partially intact vessel and some of its contents are now on display at a dedicated museum in Portsmouth. To talk about the science behind the conservation, I'm joined down the line from the Mary Rose Museum by the material scientist Eleanor Schofield, who is Deputy CEO at the Mary Rose Trust. Hi, Eleanor. Welcome to the podcast. Hi there. How are you? Oh, I'm fine, thanks. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation because I suppose I know a bit about the uh, the Mary Rose and I just find it fascinating that, uh, you know, the ship could have been taken out of the sea and put into a museum. It's just an amazing story. So, so can you give our listeners a potted history of the Mary Rose? Of course. So the Mary Rose was commissioned by Henry VIII shortly after he came to the throne in 1509. Um, She actually sailed for 34 years. This is a common misconception that she sank on her maiden voyage, but she didn't. She was involved in various campaigns, but very tragically and suddenly came to an end in 1545 when she sank off the south coast, just near Portsmouth, where I am now. There were some initial attempts to try and retrieve things from the ship, but with very little success. And actually what happened was the ship was gradually covered in silt, and this is what protected it. So alongside the ship, we have over 19,000 objects which were excavated during the 70s and 80s. And the, the part of the ship we have itself was raised in 1982. And so do we know if there was a person called Mary Rose, maybe somebody that Henry VIII knew, or is it just, uh, I suppose, a nice sounding name? It is a very nice sounding name. There there have been thoughts in the past that his sister was called Mary. Um, However, it's more likely to be a religious contest and the Rose is the Tudor Rose. So equally, at the same time as the Mary Rose, there was a ship commissioned called the Peter Pomegranate. Peter obviously um, has a religious name. And uh, the pomegranate was the symbol of Catherine of Aragon, who he was married to at the time. So that's a more likely um, origin of the name. Oh, I see. And did you know the fate of the Peter pomegranate? Will it be raised shortly and put in a museum? That had a longer life than the Mary Rose. So, in fact, we were just talking about this recently. And I think she actually sailed up until the 1550s. And then there's records of her being kind of taken out of surface and presumably would have been dismantled. I see. Okay. And and can you describe the conservation process that occurred? Uh, I would imagine that uh, the timbers were probably in a bit of a state when she was lifted out of the water. And, and I believe they were coated in polyethylene glycol. What was the thinking behind that? Well, actually, interestingly, the timbers and a lot of our artifacts are in amazing condition, considering the time spent in the marine environment and how long ago that was. The thing is, though, they, as I go back to the fact that the entire collection we have is there because it was buried in silt. And this effectively cut off oxygen eventually. So bacteria and organisms that would degrade organic material just can't function. Corrosion processes can't happen. So it means that the wood is in amazing condition. However, there has been some degradation. Obviously, 
it wasn't covered in the silt immediately. That took some time. There would have also likely been some wear and tear from its service life. Often as well, when you raise timbers out of the water, they can almost look even better than maybe they are because they're full of water. So any part that is degraded is being kind of fortified by the water there. And the job from a conservation perspective is what you don't want to happen is for that water to just come out because then you will get the the cellular structure in the wood will collapse, you'll get shrinkage, and then you really will get quite a lot of damage. So often what people will do is use a consolidant to go in and gradually replace the water where it is within the wood in the voids where there's been some material loss. There's a variety of things that people use. Uh, probably the most common is polyethylene glycol. And so we use that to to spray the ship. It, the ideal way that you would do this is actually to put them in a tank, with fill it with water and then build up the chemical. It's much quicker to do it that way. Um, but when you have a 34 metre ship, it's a bit difficult to think about constructing a tank around that. So so that's why with the Merrows we sprayed it. So it took longer for the peg to get into the wood. What sort of time frame are we talking about here? Because if the ship was raised in 1982, was it soaking in this in this substance for a very long time, like for decades? Yes, it was. In short, yes. When the ship was raised, it was sprayed, first of all, with water and cold water to actually stop any bacterial activity. Because obviously, once out of the sea and exposed to oxygen, all these processes that have been halted can suddenly start again. So it was sprayed with water. And during this time, the strategy for the conservation was being developed and tests were being done on some of the Mary Rose material. There was there was learning from other projects around the world. And so the actual active conservation of spraying with PEG started in 1994. And then the we started drying. So then you have a phase where you've put in as much PEG as you want, but there's still some residual water and you have to take that out in a controlled way. You don't just want to dry it quickly because, again, then you can get some really damaging effects from that. We started drying in 2013. So it was sprayed with PEG for 19, 19 years. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's quite a long-term project. So, so what's the current status of the timbers? I mean, I, I understand that they're they're on display to the public, or at least some of them are. Are they are they stable and not deteriorating any further? Well, one of the big focuses of our work is to make sure that we understand all the materials and how they will change over time. Another really key thing for us is keeping things in a stable environment. So, yes, there's the part of the ship that we have is on display in the historic dockyard in Portsmouth. And we keep a steady environment in terms of the temperature, the humidity, also the uh, light levels as well. And all of this ensures that you're not going to get as many changes. However, the ship alongside the rest of the collection has essentially been you know, in seawater for 400 years. So there's all kinds of stuff in there that you wouldn't normally expect to find in, say, fresh wood. This is from the seawater, but also from artifacts that did corrode. So if there was an iron cannonball on one of the decks, you might find that that's corroded and that's gone into the wood. So we know that these things are in there. And, uh, you know, our job is to continually monitor them to understand how this could change over time. We also have the fact as well that, you know, materials or some materials don't last forever. So we know that eventually the polyethylene glycol that we've put in there can start to break down. So that's why I kind of talk about it in terms of the active conservation and then the kind of ongoing efforts, because it, it never ends really. And that's because because the things are changing but also 
our ability to understand materials changes all the time. You know, the, the techniques that were available 30 years ago are completely different and, and not just the techniques that are available, but some of the cost of the techniques or the accessibility of them. So we can always learn so much more. And, you know, in 30 years from now, we'll be able to learn even more again. And all of this we use to kind of build a a picture of what the material is so we can look at how it might change and then put in those those steps to mitigate any damage. I think you've you've touched on some some research that you've done recently along with uh, an international team of scientists at the European Synchrotron Radiation Facility where you studied samples of wood from the Mary Rose. What what did you study and, and what did you find? Well, we knew from other studies that they, you do get lots of things in the wood that maybe are a little bit in, unexpected or the quantities that we have in the wood are unexpected. So things like sulfur and iron. We've done analysis on these some of these materials before, but usually what it is, is you, you need to have a bit of prior knowledge of what is there. And then you'll use a technique that's, say, tailored to a specific element. So we've done over the years, there's been a lot of synchrotron work because you can use very powerful x-rays, which can give you really detailed material characterization. What was unique about this technique at, at ESRF was that you essentially get to look at everything that's there and map where it is. So when you have these really complex heritage materials that, frankly, they have a bit of everything in, you know, we're constantly surprised of thinking, why does that have that in there? And, you know, it might be because of the conservation treatment. It might be because of something that was near it in the in the wreck. And so, yeah, with this technique at ESRF, we were really made, we were able to look at the wood structure, look at how it was degraded. We could map where the peg was within it. We could then found, we then found these, these nano-sized, particles which contained iron sulfur and zinc and we hadn't seen those before we you know we didn't know that they were there we didn't know where they were um, and so it's it was really exciting for the wood um, but also exciting just to think for materials in general that you can get a look inside and really map where it is because when it comes to developing conservation treatments if we wanted to apply something we don't just need to know what's there we need to know where it is within the structure you know is it at the surface is it is it in the vessels within the wood like how deep is it um, so this is what was really exciting about this technique and I, it's the first time it's been done on any cultural heritage materials and I think it has a lot of potential in the field. So, so these, these nanomaterials or nanoparticles that you found in the wood, is that a, an ominous discovery for you? Could, could this mean trouble in the future in terms of the hull? <laughs> Yeah, potentially, yes. So the one thing, one of our worries with any of the sulfur containing compounds is that if they're exposed to oxygen, they have the potential to form sulfates, which in some of our materials, they can, they form crystals, which could then physically break the material, or they could form sulfuric acid, which then will literally just degrade some of the components as a wood. And we've seen that that, that does and has happened a little bit. And we've seen it in other projects as well. So Yes, it does have the potential to do that. So this is kind of really the first step of thinking, right, they are there. This is where they are in the wood. How now we can look into that and think, how would they change? Can other things that we could do? Is it does it prove that we really need to keep a very tight humidity around the ship? Is there something that we could apply to neutralize it? If it was going to change, how long would it take? So, you know, it, it, this has now led on to, to lots more studies for us to do. 
So, th so this study that you've done and, and previous studies, do they suggest that, that you're on the right track with conserving the Mary Rose? Or um, if you had to do it all over again, w would you do things differently? You know, let's say if, if someone found the Peter Pomegranate and, and you had to conserve that, would you follow roughly the same process? Yeah, I think we would. I don't think we know enough yet to kind of show that another option that would have been demonstrably better. I think there's there's still lots we need to understand about the materials that were in are in the wood, but to a point until we started drying until they started changing, it you can't really predict what's going to happen. Because you have the interaction of all these different compounds there. There are issues with with peg both mechanical and chemical so it, it will break down over time at vasa a swedish warship that is actually younger than the Meros, but was raised earlier so we've, we've been able to learn quite a lot of lessons from them they started to see some breakdown products from the peg so so we can use that and think right well let's keep an eye out for that um also the the, the peg itself can change the mechanical properties of the wood um but it, there's lots of different factors that go into choosing a conservation treatment a really obvious one being the cost. <laughs> you know, you won't be surprised to hear that heritage organisations aren't rolling in it. So this this does limit what you can do. We're also a visitor attraction, you know. So I, I've had people before say to me, "Could could you not keep the ship in a in an inert environment?" But for, again, the cost of that. But also, it's you know, it's a it's a museum. We need people to be in there and comfortable and seeing it. And also the practicality of working with it. So peg is relatively easy to work with this it's not really hazardous i kind of talk about it as being industrial conservation you know it's big tanks or big spray systems um and so you, you need to have be comfortable with that because otherwise if, if it if it was something that had any kind of toxicity to it again there's huge cost implications of doing the treatment but even even having said that i don't think there's anything that is so so much better and um, that we would use it was kind of it would still be peg so, Eleanor, you, you began your career as a materials scientist. How, how did you become interested in becoming a museum conservator? And what advice would you give to other scientists who are interested in such a career? Because it sounds absolutely fascinating. Well, interestingly, my, my route into heritage came through using X-ray techniques to understand materials. So I had worked um, at a synchrotron out in the um, States in California, actually on an environmental science project. But the basis was using x-rays to understand complicated materials. And then a research post came up at the University of Kent working with the Meros and they needed a material scientist and somebody who was familiar with using synchrotron techniques. And I, I'd seen another couple of jobs um, come up at museums and the kind of heritage science thing had just come on my radar. And I was thinking, God, that's really interesting. And so I, I, I got the post at the University of Kent and then eventually was lucky enough to get a job at the Mary Rose. So yeah, my, my segue into museums was actually through synchrotrons, which is quite strange. Everything that we do now, or I do, is is looking at understanding the materials. So there's there's lots of different scientific disciplines that can that can go into that because we have such a range of materials, and obviously there's lots of different ways that you can explore them. So yeah, I think you know it's not a huge field. There aren't lots of opportunities, but I think that there are quite a lot. That you know, there's more there than maybe people think there is. There is never a dull day because, like I say, we've got all these different materials, all the different 
processes that we want to look at, developing new treatments. I mean, sometimes I look at the different research projects I'm involved with and it, it, it is quite challenging to keep up with it sometimes, to be honest, because it can range from trying to develop a peg replacement to installing and developing sensors to understand emissions in the museum to energy uses and, and system optimization. So it, and I love that because it really spans everything. The museum itself looks fascinating. I took a look at the website for the Mary Rose Museum, and there's some fascinating images there. The, the thing that really struck me was uh, the, the tools. There's a picture of, of tools that were recovered from the Mary Rose, wooden tools, and they look absolutely pristine. Uh, I mean, are they pristine, or do, do, do you have to preserve those tools? Because they look like, you know, something you could find in your in your garage. One, one of the things that our staff and volunteers who work in the museum repeatedly say is that they constantly have to emphasize to people and reassure people that, yes, these are all genuine Mary Rose things, because people just cannot believe it and it is mind-blowing because they, this, the the items are just in immaculate condition yes some are a little bit um more degraded and obviously it's the the most well intact things that we've got on display but they they are in remarkable condition some some of the things that are on display literally had to go through a, a wash with water to get rid of debris and, and salt from the seawater and then were dried and that's all they needed after all that time and i think the, the thing that I love about our museum is there's just so many different stories and there's such a cross section of society represented in the museum because when the ship went down, it didn't discriminate between who was the, the sailor or soldier on board and the, the officers and gentlemen. It was it was everybody. You know, it was a huge tragedy and hundreds of people went down with the ship. And what we have, all of their things, and through that we can we can tell their story. And it's just we've already learned so much, but I think there's there's still so much more to do. And that's what I think is is really powerful. You know, oft, often museums, it's the it's the high society things that get saved and put in museums. But in our museum, it has it has everybody's. And the the things that I really love are we've got this just beautiful little wooden spoon, and it's just immaculate, and I love that. And also, we've got fabulous knit combs. The thing I love about those is maybe maybe they wouldn't be wooden now, but ultimately they're the same. Like they they worked five hundred years ago and they work now. You know, it's like they haven't hasn't really had to change it because it's still good. And it's those things I think in our museum that really connect you to those people and that personal story. Everybody should come visit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've mentioned, uh, you, you know, we, we've spoken about the, the work that you've done preserving wooden objects, but are there other objects in the collection made of other materials that also pose uh, a challenge from a material science point of view? Yeah, absolutely. So we have done, are still doing lots of work into marine archaeological iron. That can be very difficult. It's amazing how much we have that survived and that can be really challenging. It can corrode quite rapidly. And we're doing some work into the bricks, which actually is one of my favourite things at the moment because it's it's so unexpected. We have we have over three thousand bricks in our collection, so they were the the ovens on board, maybe some of the ballast as well. But it's quite it's quite an unusual thing that you wouldn't normally associate with it with a ship. But again, we have problems with things that are in them that that can cause problems over time. I mean, in terms of the different items that we've got, I mean, we've got lots of different types of of wood, leather. We've got textiles um, like like knitted wool and things like that, felted wool from a hat. Um, we've got lead, pewter, copper, bronze, brass, it, human remains, animal remains. It's just it, it's it's a huge collection with lots of different interesting materials. Oh, that sounds fascinating, and and it sounds like there's a lot of uh, amazing material science in there as well. 
Thanks so much for being on the podcast, Eleanor. Thank you. The LIGO and Virgo observatories are kilometer-scale interferometers that detect the tiny distortions in space-time that occur when a gravitational wave passes through Earth. The first signal to be observed, which was from the merger of two black holes, was seen in 2015. And since then, the LIGO-Virgo detectors have spotted 90 more mostly from merging black holes, but they've also seen some events that evolve neutron stars. The LIGO-Virgo collaboration has just released an analysis of data taken in the second half of its third observing run. And to chat about what's been seen, I'm joined down the line from Cardiff University by three members of the collaboration. Welcome to Catherine Dooley, Steve Fairhurst, and Fabio Antonini. Hi guys, welcome to the podcast. Catherine, can you give a simple explanation of how gravitational waves are formed and how they're detected by LIGO and Virgo? Right, yeah, thanks for welcoming us to the program. Uh, Gravitational waves are one of the results of Einstein's general theory of relativity. As opposed to Newton, he described how space-time is in fact a dynamic uh, fabric of the universe and it can be deformed. So that was the the real revelation there. These deformations of space-time can thus create ripples that emanate outwards, just like you might imagine ripples in a pond emanating out from a stone tossed in. However, so for uh, gravitational waves, what causes them, rather than a, a stone thrown into space, is uh, very large asymmetrical disturbances created by such events as black holes colliding into one another. These, these gravitational waves create an effective stretching and shrinking of space-time that can be picked up by our detectors here on Earth. And the way that it works is we use light as a probe to measure the distance between two mirrors. We know that the speed of light is constant, and by detecting whether the amount of time it takes for our light to travel four kilometers and back, and it bounces back and forth quite a few times, if that time changes, then we know that the distance between these mirrors has changed. And and that's the fundamental principle of how we can detect this shrinking and stretching, these distortions of space-time. And, and Catherine, these changes are incredibly small, aren't they? Can you, can you just give us an idea of, uh, of the sort of distortions that you're looking at? Yes, they are very small. And so the magnitude of these distortions is of, of the order um, of, say, one ten-thousandth the, the size of a, a proton. Every day we're working harder and harder to be able to measure even smaller changes in in this distance between the two mirrors. One reason that this uh, distance is so small is because space-time itself is quite stiff. So it's more like a a piece of metal that if you were to vibrate it, you're not going to very visibly see it bouncing up and down compared to a sheet, for instance. And Steve, you you and your colleagues on LIGO-Virgo, you've spotted 35 gravitational wave signals in the second half of your third observing run, and that ran from November 2019 to March 2020. That's about one every four days. Is that a significant increase in the detection rate over the first two observing runs of LIGO-Virgo? 
Yeah, that's right. So in the in the second half of what we call 03, our third run, we found 35 new events. As you discussed, our first run was back in 2015, and that's when we saw the first black hole merger. That one ran for about four months, and we saw three events. And then our second run lasted almost a year, and we had about 10 events in it. And so they came roughly one a month, although our events don't come sort of evenly spaced out. Even in the last run, when we had 35 events, there was one time we had two events on the same day, and then we had to wait another week until the next event came. So it's not like they come you know, regularly every four days. They come whenever the universe decides to send us some gravitational waves. But yes, the rate has significantly increased. So we've gone from kind of one event a month in the second run up to slightly more than events a week uh, in the latest run. And you can understand why that's happened. As we upgrade the detectors between each run, they get more sensitive. Between the second and third runs, our detectors got about 50% more sensitive. So that means they could see out 50% further into the universe. But galaxies and gravitational wave events are distributed roughly sort of uniformly in the universe. And if you can see 50% as far, then you cube that 1.5, you get four times the volume you're sensitive to. And so our rate then has gone up by a factor of four. For the next run, which will start late next year, we expect something like that improvement again. And so probably we'll get another increase, maybe a factor of two or three in event rate. So we'll be up close to, you know, an event every couple of days, which is just amazing because it's only five or six years ago we first saw these things. And now they'll, they'll start to become daily occurrences in a couple of years' time. That is amazing. Yeah. So Fabio, can you give us a flavor of what sort of events you've spotted in the second half of the third run? Were there any surprises in there? Uh, so first of all, in total, as you mentioned before, we observe about 90 sources and most of them are uh, binary black holes, so binaries in which both components are a black hole. And we observed for the first time now also binaries in which one of the components is also a neutron star. And this is very, uh, very exciting uh, because, first of all, it's the first time that we observe such, such an object. And I remember when I was a postdoc and even a, a student, uh, so people were talking about why we wouldn't observe any uh, such binaries, why we were uh, observing neutron star binaries. There was no uh, non-neutron star black hole binary at, the, at that time. So this is uh, really something very exciting that eventually is going to change our understanding of, uh, of the physics, of, uh, especially of neutron stars uh, and, their, uh, and their equation of state. Generally, in, uh, uh, in the last observing run, including also the first half of the observing run, we observe other very exciting and interesting events. Uh, one of these events, uh, which again is really surprising, is uh, the discovery of an intermediate mass black hole. Uh, so this source, uh, GW190521, um, was uh, produced by the merger of two black holes each with, with masses above what we call the uh, upper mass gap. So uh, a range, the, both black holes have a mass in a range of masses where astrophysically, theoretically, we would not expect to see any, uh, any black hole. Uh, and that's because during the formation of, uh, during the, the evolution of the uh, black hole progenitors, instabilities in the stellar course prevent um, the, uh, the formation of such, uh, such ob objects. Uh, in fact, these instabilities uh, called pair instabilities uh, lead to the uh, complete destruction of, uh, of a star or uh, in other cases to the uh, ejection of most of the, of the stellar mass and the formation of, 
uh, black holes at mass lower than 40 solar masses. So seeing black holes with a mass uh, with a mass larger than uh, about 40 solar masses was also very uh, very surprising uh, if you compare this again this uh, to the um, uh, theoretical predictions. And so this my uh, this specific source actually my point towards um, uh, other formation scenarios like um, that involve um, dynamical uh, gravitational encounters in dense environments, astrophysical environments such as clusters and uh, galactic nuclei. Uh, and again, that's very, uh, very exciting. Um, the other uh, surprising uh, result from the, the O3 run was the discovery of uh, highly asymmetric menstruation binaries. So binaries in which the two components have uh, very different masses. And uh, one of them, for the analysis of the source, the uh, people in Cardiff really played an important role had two components, one with a mass of 25 solar masses and one with 2.5 solar masses. And this is a very high uh, mass ratio binary that is also very difficult to explain in terms of um, astrophysical population uh, population models. And so I would say that uh, talking about the uh, single sources of the uh, highly symmetric mass ratio binaries and the uh, absence of a mass gap uh, at high masses are probably some of the most surprising, uh, yeah, are two of, of uh, uh, the most surprising uh, discoveries made by, by LIGO in the last observing run. And uh, more specifically to the, uh, to the last papers, um, uh, because now we have uh, um, a larger sample of, of sources, we can really identify um, structures uh, and uh, in their uh, distribution of the properties and maybe also correlations between the properties of these sources. And uh, these also turn out to, to actually challenge some of our understanding of stellar evolution. For example, we have seen for the first time some possible correlation between the spin of the black holes and the mass of the black holes. And we are starting also to constrain more tightly the dependence of the metal rate with, with redshift. And this is also quite different what we uh, what and the light collaboration has found is quite different what, from what expected from theoretical models. Uh, it, uh, uh, it, it is found that the, the, color, the measure rate correlates quite steeply with, very steeply actually, with, uh, with redshift, while uh, theoretical models will predict a much uh, sh shallower uh, correlation or mild correlation with, with redshift. And Fabio, you mentioned seeing uh, the merger of uh, a neutron star with a black hole, but I don't think in, in those cases any light or other electromagnetic radiation was spotted. And I would have thought that when a neutron star merges with a black hole, you'd see a, a, a huge amount of, of radiation. Was it surprising that you didn't see these other signals? Well, Given the distance of the of the sources, these were spotted about 300 megaparsec uh, away from us, um, and the lar larger set uncertainty in the sky localization. So, uh, especially for the first uh, of the two sources, uh, this is a merger of a nine uh, solar mass um, black hole plus a two solar mass neutron star. Um, the uh, this was only spotted by one of the. Uh, of the detectors in, uh, in Livingston. And so the uh, sky localization um, is very poor. We, we don't really have a good uh, uh, localization for at least, well, for, for both sources. And so this uh, means that the, the lack of an electromagnetic counterpart uh, is not really uh, surprising. 
Um, and um, also there is another maybe more interesting uh, reason why maybe this sources should not be expected to produce any electromagnetic counter and that's uh, because of the high mass ratio the high mass of the uh, of the black holes in fact for um, so for uh, black holes that have uh, large masses and large masses would expect to be neutron star companions to be swallowed by the by the black holes to cross the um, if you want the event horizon of the black hole uh, or what we call the radius of the last table circular orbit uh, of the black hole before the neutron star is uh, is disrupted uh, and uh, because of the large mass of the of the black holes in this case we can be quite confident that uh, for these binaries at least uh, we uh, we would observe essentially no ejecta from the uh, from the collision of the neutron star and the, and the, uh, and the black hole. Unfortunately, the, uh, of course, the lack of um, an electromagnetic counterpart from, uh, uh, from these sources also implies that uh, uh, we cannot be 100% sure that, this, uh, the, that the secondary objects of the, of the binaries were actually neutron stars, um, because in principle could be, uh, uh, so, uh, could be black, black holes. The fact that this distinction between neutron stars and black holes based on a mass of about uh, three solar masses, so we call anything that is below three solar masses a neutron star, and anything that is detected with a mass above above this uh, a black hole is based on astrophysical priors. Okay, but this uh, could be, for example, primordial black holes of of a lower uh, lower mass. So if, uh, this, uh, uh, we should keep this in this in mind when interpreting these uh, these sources. Catherine, the LIGO and Virgo detectors are currently being upgraded. What's being done to them, and um, how will this improve your observation of uh, gravitational waves? Right. So, in general, the, the the scope of how these detectors work is we go through these periods of upgrading them, changing out hardware, making all the new components work together, and then collecting data. So, we are in this phase now of upgrading the detectors. and one of the main directions of work is to increase the laser power and to implement to an even greater extent than before a, a relatively new technology called squeezing. And, and for that, uh, because it's a, a pretty exciting topic, I'll, I'll delve a little bit further in, into there. Squeezing has in fact already been used for this uh, 03 observing run. And what it means is that we need to look at one of the main sources of noise in the detectors. So noise in the detectors can be broken into two categories. We have noise that causes the mirrors themselves to actually bounce around in a way much like the gravitational waves cause them to do so. And we have noise that is on the detection side and our ability to measure this distance between the mirrors or the change in time of the light that's bouncing between them. One of the ways in which both of these types of noises is created is from fluctuations of the uh, vacuum state of electromagnetic waves. So vacuum fluctuations are the fact that you can't ever have an electromagnetic state that's actually zero is always going to be some energy. And this energy enters the interferometer, and it enters in a way that it disturbs our measurement of the gravitational waves 
at the detection side, and it enters in a way that it disturbs the actual motions of the mirrors itself. We use this quantum optics technology to manipulate the vacuum state, and we send in our own version of this uh, ground state of vacuum into the interferometer. One way to think about it is that we take this pitter-patter of the photons, when you think of electromagnetic waves as photons, and we make their arrival times of these individual photons much more regular than they would otherwise naturally be. And so by making these arrival times more consistent, we can lower our noise in both of these regions. For the O3 observing run, we affected the high frequencies where we're more likely to detect neutron star coalescences, for instance. We were able to lower the noise in the detector through this uh, squeezed vacuum technology there. For the O4 observing run, we're making some additional changes in order to lower the noise at lower frequencies where black holes are detected, for instance. And what this involves is the construction of a new 300 meter long optical cavity. So there's in fact quite a bit of, of real heavy work going on at the site to, to knock down a wall, build a new uh, vacuum tube and install this ability to, to change in a frequency dependent way this squeezed vacuum that we send into the detectors. And what improvement will that make? Will you be seeing more and more signals? Is that the, the ultimate goal? Ultimately, yes. Everything that we do to upgrade the detectors is always with the aim of detecting more signals, either through improving the sensitivity, as this particular upgrade is doing, or through increasing the amount of time that the detectors are up and running and collecting data. So there are other upgrades in place to improve this uptime of the detectors. And one, one particular example uh, is the fact that earthquakes, for instance, can cause the detectors to drop out of operation. If the ground moves too much, it really just shakes these mirrors around more than is possible for our controls to handle. So through, through some clever techniques of the control of the seismic isolation system, we've allowed the detectors to ride through more earthquakes than they have been able to in the past. And that was one factor that contribute to, contributed to a greater uptime in this O3 observing run. I'll, I'll add there's um, some exciting outlooks of what's going to come beyond O4. So after we make efforts to increase the laser power and, and, and make this frequency-dependent squeezing work in the detectors, we have all other sorts of hardware changes coming up in the course of the next uh, several years. And this includes changing out some of the mirrors themselves. There's new technology in the coatings that go onto the optics that we want to take advantage of. Um, this is going to become one of the next new limiting sources of noise. The fact that the mirrors have temperature and the Brownian motion of the atoms and in, in inside the optic or on the surface of the optic actually create a noise for us. And we can take um, some steps in order to reduce that through improving these high reflective coatings. And 
other other say more minor but yet very important upgrades that are going on all the time include the installation of baffles. So this is just some uh, black glass, for instance, that will absorb any scattered light that uh, bounces off of the mirrors in order to prevent it from re-entering the beam that carries the information from the gravitational waves. And Steve, in the next observing run, the Kagra detector in Japan will join the hunt. How will this improve your ability to detect and study the sources of gravitational waves? Yeah, that's right. So in the fourth observing run, we expect to have four detectors operating. And so LIGO, I'm not sure we've mentioned yet, LIGO actually operates two detectors, one on the east coast of the US and one on the west coast. Then the Virgo detector is in uh, Italy, and that's run in the second and third observing runs with LIGO. And in the fourth run, a detector Kagra, which is an underground detector uh, in Japan, will, will also join the hunt. And there's several ways that this will um, improve our observation. The first one comes back to something Kate was just talking about, which is uptime. None of our detectors, even when we're in observing mode, are operational 100% of the time. Sometimes they're down for scheduled maintenance, but then other times things like earthquakes will disrupt them and will knock them out of science operation. And so just having more detectors in the network means there's more time when we have at least one or even two or three detectors running. And so we have you know, our eyes open for a greater fraction of the time. Nearly all of the observations we've made, we've made with at least two detectors operating. And the reason for that is that these are complicated instruments running, and we're trying to pick out weak signals buried in uh, instrumental noise. And sometimes there's noise artifacts in there, noise transients and things. And one of the best things you can do is confidently see the same signal in two different detectors, which are separated by thousands of miles. And then this makes you really confident this is an astrophysical signal rather than some local disturbance. So adding CAGRA will give us a greater amount of time when at least two detectors are operating. Um, a couple of other things that will do for us. One thing we're very interested in, as we've talked about with the electromagnetic counterparts, is working out where the signals come from. Now, gravitational wave detectors are very different than your typical telescope you might think of. If you see a signal in a telescope, you know exactly where it came from. If you see a signal in one gravitational wave detector, you really don't know where it came from. And the way we localize the signals is by seeing the same signal in several detectors and then basically using time delay of between the time of arrival of the signal at the different detectors to work out where it came from. If you ever go hiking and you ever did orienteering and you're lost in the mountains, if you work out where three mountains are relative to you, you can look on your map and work out where you must be. It's basically the same thing we're doing. It's a triangulation technique that lets us work out where the signal comes from. So adding more detectors lets us do that more precisely. So it let us localize the signals better. And then there's a better chance for a, a telescope to maybe pick up an afterglow of, of a merger. The third thing I want to talk about briefly is measuring the polarizations of gravitational waves. Now, in Einstein's theory, gravitational waves, uh, gravitons, if you like, have no mass, so they travel at the speed of light. They then have two polarizations, which are just like the polarizations of light that you're probably familiar with. In most of the observations to date, 
and partly because deliberately the LIGO detectors are pretty well aligned, they see essentially the same polarization. So in most of our detections to date, we've pretty much only seen one polarization of gravitational waves. If you add the CAGRA detector on, it's oriented differently, and that will help us pick up the second polarization of gravitational waves, which will improve our, our measurements and our understanding of the signals. Also, with four detectors on, we can start to test whether there really are only two polarizations of gravitational waves. In some alternative theories of gravity that are not general relativity, you could have as many as six different polarizations of gravitational waves. And so adding more detectors lets us test whether that's, that's happening or really we have got just two polarizations, as you might expect from uh, general relativity. So there's a, a bunch of things which CAGRA will bring to our observations. And I should say, in the future runs, um, after this fourth run, there'll be another detector, LIGO India, which will also join the hunt. So our full network then will have five detectors sort of scattered around the globe to, you know, to, to increase these network observations, our localization, and the accuracy of these various measurements. Wow, that sounds really exciting. So um, um, best of luck with, uh, with your future observations and, and congratulations on what you've done so far, you and your colleagues at LIGO Virgo. It's, uh, it's some really exciting stuff. Thanks for being on the podcast. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Eleanor Schofield, Catherine Dooley, Fabio Antonini, and Steve Fairhurst for joining me today. And a special thanks to our new producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, if you've enjoyed this podcast, why not check out the Physics World Stories podcast, in which host Andrew Glester takes a focused look every month at the big stories and issues in the physics community. You can find stories on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.